0: Shortly after the introduction of Catholicism into Korea in the late 18th century, Korea's Confucian government began to persecute Catholics. Why would a Confucian government torture and kill the people it was supposed to protect and nurture? Why would Koreans turn to a religion that differed fundamentally from the established norms of their country, particularly when following that religion, could lead to their deaths? Dr. Don Baker, in his book, Catholicism and Anti-Catholicism in Chosun, Korea, published by Honolulu's University of Hawaii Press in 2017, answered these these questions, both through his own words and through translations of works by a leading Catholic who died a martyr and a Confucian scholar who criticized Catholicism. In this meticulously researched, annotated, and refreshingly clear work, Baker reveals perspectives of both sides in an easy-to-understand fashion, making this book suitable both for scholars and for a text in undergraduate or graduate classes. And in the interest of full disclosure, Professor Don Baker was my uh, PhD advisor, and I'm credited as a kind of an assistant author in this work. I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rauch of Lander University, one of the hosts of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Don Baker about his new book, Catholicism and Anti-Catholicism in Chosun, Korea. Hello, Dr. Baker. Good to talk with you, Frank. How are you doing today? Pretty good. It's
1: a rare day in Vancouver when it's not raining, so I'm enjoying it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I wonder if you could begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I'm I'm in Canada now, but I grew up in Louisiana and wasn't very interested in Asia until I saw a notice on a bulletin board at Louisiana State University, where I was attending as an undergrad, and that notice offered a free year in Hawaii to people who would study Chinese, so I just wanted to go to Hawaii. Uh, and I applied and, and got the grant, went to Hawaii for a year, learned Chinese and fell in love with Asia, um, finished uh, at university, Louisiana State University, and then um, wanted to get back to Asia, didn't have any money, so I applied to Peace Corps, and Peace Corps said, well, we can't send you to China or Taiwan, how about Korea? And I thought at the time, oh, Korea can't be that different, I had no clue. <laughs> so I went to Korea in 1971 and fell in love with Korea. And that has been my my main interest in my life ever since, is uh, exploring Korean history and religion.
0: And so how did you get interested in religion in particular? Well, I'm really an historian,
1: but my dissertation was on the confrontation between Catholics and Confucians, similar to the book that just came out. I was looking at Confucianism first, and I began to see some Confucians who became Catholics and then... Those who continued to be Catholics, despite the government telling them not to, were being killed. And I found that a fascinating story, especially because one of the people involved is one of the, uh, the greatest philosophers in all Korean history, a guy named Chung Ya-yong, better known as Tasan. And so that was an area that had not been explored much in English. And so I, I started delving into that. I've been working on that ever
0: since, basically. Well, excellent. And so could you tell us, then, how did you come to actually choose to write this particular book? Well,
1: um, I mean, I've been working on this broad subject for a long time, for four decades. But then uh, the Academy of Korean Studies in Korea gave money to UCLA to find people to translate some important Korean historical documents. And they had identified as one of the hundred documents they wanted translated, the Silk Letter of Hong sa Young, who was one of the first Catholics. And he wrote a firsthand description of the first really bloody persecution. And so I said, well, I, I know that text. Um, I've got a grad student working on that text. Yeah, <laughs> so, that would be me. <laughs> uh, yeah,
0: that
1: was you. Um, and so I told UCLA, yep, we'll do it. And so that's how I finally got around to writing this book.
0: But of course, um, Hwang Se-young's only one part. There's another fellow? A-Jung Bok, yes.
1: Uh, he was an anti-Catholic. <laughs> so I wanted to find out why the Confucian government of Korea uh, persecuted Catholics. So I had to look at the Confucians as well. And An Jung-bok, and we also translate in the book his um, his attack on Catholicism, which is because his son-in-law was one of the first Catholics, and he was upset about that. Now, An died before the persecution, and he didn't call for Catholics to be killed. He, he simply wrote a long essay trying to convince his son-in-law to return to the true fold of Confucianism. So we have in the book both An Jung-bok's anti-Catholic treaties and the much longer first-person account of the of the persecution of 1801.
0: Right, and that's that's one thing that um, for our listeners that makes this an interesting book, and, and a book you may want to adopt for the classroom, because it's both a book about this subject, but it also includes lengthy translations uh, that are annotated um, so that students can also read the primary sources for themselves.
1: That's very important. I want, I want Koreans to speak for themselves. I find that um, Christians often can't understand why Confucians wanted to kill Christians, And people who aren't Christians can't understand why people would risk their lives to become Christians. (laughs) So we try in the book to help people understand both, to understand why so many Korean Confucians in the 18th and 19th century wanted to eradicate Christianity from their country, and yet why so many dedicated Christians, even before there were missionaries there, were willing to risk their lives to keep this faith going. So we try to, in the book, show both sides so people can understand the complexity of, of what Korea was like in the 18th and 19th century.
0: Well, and that's a very good segue into to your first chapter, Korea at the end of the 18th century. So could you tell us what was Korea like at the end of the 18th century?
1: Well, first of all, it was under a monarchy. That's important to remember. Um, it, was like, it was like a little China as far as the structure of its government goes. And like China, it also had religious diversity. Uh, Buddhism was not a was not approved by the government, but it was tolerated by the government. And then there was the indigenous religion, Korean religion of shamanism. Mostly, most of the shamans at that time were women. That was also disapproved of, but tolerated by the government. But the government was Confucian, and it maintained control through what I call ritual hegemony. As long as it was it, people didn't violate the government's claim to tell you. Who, what gods you could worship, who could worship them, when they could be worshipped, how they could be worshipped, and so on, you were allowed to go about your business. As long as shamans didn't challenge the government's ultimate ritual authority, and as long as Buddhists didn't challenge the ultimate, the government's ultimate authority, they were left alone, even though they were often uh, described by the government as, as foolish beliefs. And so that's the religious landscape. Um, the ruling elite of Korea were Yangban, who are Confucian scholars, and are dedicated to maintaining Confucianism. That's how they get their status in society. And because they were the educated elite, they, they were reading Chinese. I should point out that's very important. They, uh, Korea had its own alphabet from the 15th century, and their, their language is very different from Chinese, not even a member of the same language family. But educated Koreans preferred to read text in classical Chinese. And that's how Catholicism got to Korea. It got to Korea in the form of texts published in China, in Chinese, by either missionaries or Chinese Catholics. Oh,
0: oh, excellent. So, yeah, and Koreans like this term, Little China, right? They liked it then, yes.
1: <laughs> they were very
0: <laughs> proud of being as close to China as you could be without being
1: in China. In fact, I was reading something this morning about uh, again, chung yag uh, Dasan, where he said, in writing a history of Korea, he said, if you can't be born in China, the next best thing is if you're born in Korea. Yeah. So they are very proud of that.
0: right? So um, so you've given us, a, in, in this book, you gave us a, a good idea of what Korea was like at the time. You've given us the historical context. Moving on to chapter two, Confucian criticism of Catholicism. What were the sh- factors that shaped how Korean Confucians would, would approach Catholicism? Well, there are a couple.
1: They're ideological and political. Uh, we see in the translation of the Chanakko, the I mean, Munda, the Dialogue on, on Christianity by Jung Bok, the ideological reason for criticizing um, Christianity. Confucianism, it's important to remember, has no God. It's, it's an anthropocentric religion. It's all about human relations. You're supposed to put uh, a good person is someone who thinks about their community more than themselves. The ultimate sin in Confucianism is selfishness, putting your own personal interest ahead of the, the need of your family, your community, and your and your country. Uh, and so, to Anjung jung Christianity, because it promised individual salvation in heaven, appeared to him to encourage selfishness. Over and over again, he kept saying, "These Catholics are selfish." All they want to do is go to heaven. They don't care about their family. They don't care about their country. They just want to go to heaven. They care about this God of theirs more than they care about their human beings around them. And that, by definition, in Confucianism, is immoral. So that was the first problem. The Christianity, because of its emphasis on the individual, really challenged the communitarian ethics of Confucianism. Now, politically, the problem was, I mentioned ritual hegemony earlier, uh, where the government uh, had authority over ritual that included telling you not only what rituals you could not be perform, perform it, it had the authority to tell you what rituals you had to perform and one of the most important rituals especially for the young man elite were ancestor memorial services i don't like the term ancestor worship uh, that, sometimes that, that term is used but it was a service in which on the anniversary of a parents or grandparents death you would uh put a little um Spirit tablet, they call it, with the name of the ancestor on a table. Then you'd put some food on the table, and you would bow towards the tablet. That looked to Westerners like worship. But, of course, Koreans bow to show respect to anybody that's they should show respect to. It's just it's like shaking hands in the West. Um, but anyway, the, the Catholics had been told uh, by the bishop in, in Beijing that Catholics were not allowed to put a spirit tablet on a table and bow towards it. They could... Uh, they could honor their dead. That was perfectly acceptable, but you could not bow towards a spirit tablet. That had been a decision made in the Vatican in the early 18th century. The first Koreans who became Catholicism didn't know about that, but they found out in in, in 17 um, 1790. Unfortunately, uh, very soon after that, one of the Catholics uh, lost his mother, and he had a funeral service for her without a spirit tablet, and that was reported. Even though that ritual was in his own home, mourning his own mother, that was a violation of government law. So he was, he was executed uh, for refusing to accept the ritual hegemony, the ritual authority of the Chosun government.
0: Right. And so, and th- going back also to one of the points you just made, An Chung Bok, though, is criticizing Catholicism before they know about this ancestor right problem. That's right.
1: He is. He doesn't talk about that at all. He, what, he, what he would just say is that all you guys talk about is going to heaven yourself. He said, if you really cared about it, he actually said, so you call Jesus the Messiah, a Messiah. And he used the term to save people. A <laughs> Messiah is to save humanity. You know, not, not one person, but save the community. Um, I maybe I should point out in Confucianism, there is no notion of a separate and distinct soul per se. Uh, you, uh, you are, you are, what you are as an individual is defined by all of your relationships. There's no you apart from your roles as being a parent, a child, a, a subject of a king, a member of a community, and so on. All those roles together are what make you, you. So this Catholic notion that each person is endowed with their own unique soul and that the soul survives the body and can rise into heaven if the person has been faithful to God's laws during their life. That didn't make any sense because they define a human being as their social roles, and um, and to turn your back on your social roles in a society where Christianity was was well, was a very small group. So to become a Catholic, you were basically turning your back on the majority of society. That was that was destroying yourself in Confucian terms. It was self-destructive behavior, and it was and it was also very selfish. And so, um, An uh, didn't mention the ancestor service, of course, but he he did. Ah, uh, complain that Catholics put their head of their family obligations. He said that. And that and that to him was the height of selfishness.
0: Right. So this does seem uh, and I there's this kind of different approach I find that people have to these issues where some people try and say, you know, that the struggle or the conflict between Catholicism and Confucianism was misunderstanding. Or others who say no, there was a real difference there. W- which position would you take?
1: I think there was a real difference there. <laughs>
0: I think that uh, it's a whole different worldview. I mean, when you see the human
1: being as nothing more than uh, basically um, one little node in a network of interrelationships among human beings, or you see a human being as having a special relationship with God above and possessing an immortal soul that's theirs and theirs alone. That's totally different. Um, as I'm put it, you know, obligations are in distributionism, obligations up to this world And in Catholicism, your primary obligation is to a God above. When um, that poor Catholic whose mother died early on in the history of the Catholic Church in Korea in the the late 18th century, when he was being interrogated, the interrogator said, well, what are the Ten Commandments? And when he started off with commandments about, you know, honor God, the interrogator said, what? There's two problems with these list of commandments. One, the parents, the command to obey your parents is like number four, should be number one. (laughs) And where's the king? there's no commandment to honor your king. <laughs> he said, that, that's immoral, your commandments. Said, it's ridiculous. Um, and so they went back and forth on that. And, and Yunji Jung, his name, uh, blessed Paul Yun, he's been raised to, he's been beatified now, uh, said, well, I'm sorry, but you know, my, my God insists that he should be the main object of my obedience and, and, um, and worship. And, um, and then they said, what about your king? What about your family? <laughs> so it, I would say it, it's a, a, you could say the difference maybe the Catholics have a vertical orientation towards God and the Confucians is horizontal towards their community. And that that's not just a misunderstanding. That's a fundamental incompatibility of their basic beliefs of what people's moral obligations are.
0: Right. So then there is and, and I think this is an important point of your book is that this shows that it was really a big deal for anyone to become Catholic in, in Korea at this time. It was life threatening. <laughs>
1: right. When they first became Catholic, I mean, they didn't know. But as soon as they right. found out about the ancestor memorial service being outlawed, they knew that if they continued being Catholic, they were risking their lives.
0: Right. Well, I mean, even before it's a, it's it's declared illegal, this is a major shift in their worldview that, that Catholicism is asking them to make. It is.
1: One of the uh, earliest Catholics, a guy named Eve Yuck, um, who died in 17. Um, 86, he never found out about the ban on ancestral memorial services. Nevertheless, when he became a Catholic, his father got so upset, we're told, his father threatened to kill himself if his son didn't leave the Catholic, the small Catholic community he helped found. And so we're told the son did that because he he didn't want his father to kill himself. So that was even because the father, what the father was worried about again was his son starting to ignore his obligations to his society and instead think about obligations to God. And to the father, that was a very dangerous way of thinking.
0: So then, considering how difficult this is, th- this kind of shift in worldview and later this persecution, um, can you tell us, then how was the Catholic Church actually born in Korea? That is a fascinating story. Um, and Catholics are very proud of the
1: fact that they, the Catholic Church began in Korea before there were missionaries in Korea. Now, actually, there were missionaries in, or priests in Korea, and there were, in the late 1500s, when the Japanese invaded, but they were they were they were chaplains to the invading forces. <laughs> they, they weren't running around trying to preach to Koreans. Um, what had happened? Catholic books published in China had begun entering Korea starting in the early 1600s, and then suddenly, in the last quarter of the 18th century, um, Koreans started taking these Catholic writings as religious writings seriously. And one young man named Yi Sun Hun uh, went to Beijing met with the, the priest there and came back baptized as Peter. And he the one who began baptizing his friends. And he, um, and he was a friend of Ibiak. He was, was the first one that he um, talked to when he came back. And, and so slowly you had this small Catholic community emerging in Korea before there were any missionaries and no priests, of course. And finally, uh, after 10 years of this, after the first killings of 1791, when a couple of people were killed for not having a proper spirit tablet, a Chinese priest was smuggled into Korea. But then he was caught up in the massive persecution of 1801 and killed. They had to go another almost three decades without any priest. So it's a fascinating story. Some of those priests were killed, so they had to go a while longer without priest. So... the, the first century of the Catholic Church in Korea, we I mean, dated from 1784, um, the first century, most of the time, the Catholic Church was having to survive without any priest, which is an amazing feat when you consider that the priests are central to the Catholic Church for the sacraments.
0: Right, right. And for our listeners who may not be so familiar with Catholicism, could you say a little bit more about why the sacraments are so important? Well, first of
1: all, you, one thing that was very important to these Catholics is confession. Uh, they had learned you know, what, that there were certain things, if you did, that there were mortal sins. And if you died before those sins were forgiven, uh, you would be condemned to eternal damnation in hell. But only a priest had the power to channel God's saving grace t- to forgive those sins. So it was very important to them They have a priest to hear their confession and so they could go to heaven. Um, and also course the Mass is a, is a sacred ritual for the Catholic Church, and you have to have a priest doing that. Before the, when the Catholics in Korea began organizing the Catholic community, they didn't realize the importance of a priest per se. They started saying Mass themselves until the bishop found out and said, no, you can't do that. You have to have an ordained priest to do that. Um, and so uh, and because of the the Catholic Church's belief that God's grace is relayed to human beings through the sacraments and except for baptism, um, you really need a priest for those sacraments. And so to survive that long without a priest is a pretty remarkable feat for these Korean Catholics.
0: Well, um, and so what's interesting to me, too, about this, though, the Catholic population is never very large. And, I mean, you, you outlined why the government wouldn't like Catholicism, but why would the government go after um or why do these Catholics quickly find themselves in trouble when they're such a small community? Why would the government bother with them? Well, first of all,
1: there are a number of reasons. The first reason, of course, was the ritual impropriety. The, the, when, when the Catholic, the first Catholic he refused to have a spirit tablet for his mother's funeral was Yongban. I mean, he was the local elite who was supposed to provide a model of proper behavior for his neighbors. And the government felt that they... Uh, they could not allow that kind of challenge to their ritual demands by a member of the elite. They had to kill him. Um, the chosen government was thinking back to a, an old Chinese text from about 2,500 years ago that says there are two tools used to support government. One is control of force. The other is control of ritual. And so they were undermining, what the Catholics were undermining one of the two props of, of, of government. The second thing was, uh, that when the government found out these Catholics were in touch with foreigners because they were sending these letters to the bishop to the bishop in Beijing, um, that bothered them because the government didn't want Koreans uh, g- going beyond Korean borders to contact foreigners on their own. They wanted to be, have total control over Korean contact uh, with foreigners. Um, it got worse in 1801, which is the subject of this book, Um when the Catholic, a major persecution started, we should back up a bit. A king who had not favored Catholics but didn't really want a major persecution because he he thought some of the Catholics were pretty bright scholars and liked to keep them in his government. Uh, when he died in 1800, the new king came in as a child, and that king's uh, um, relatives, basically in laws, took over the government, and they didn't like the catholics uh, because they were a different a lot of them were a different political faction, and so they lost this major persecution and huang sa young the subject of this book then wrote a long letter the silk letter which we translate to the bishop in beijing detailing the persecution but also at the end saying and the only way to stop this persecution is to put pressure on the korean government and one way to do that is to have the Pope send a fleet of European ships uh, with European guns and, and, and sailors with weapons and to force the Korean government to stop the persecution. That letter was intercepted before it could be delivered to China. That then convinced the government that this was a serious problem, that the Catholics were not only a threat to their ritual control of the country, it was a threat to their territorial integrity. Uh, that it, the Catholics were were traitors inviting foreign military intervention in Korean affairs. And that's when the persecution got much worse and probably why it continued for another 70 years after that.
0: Now, in talking about the causes of the persecution, one one thing I, I was thinking about this morning, I, I was going through the, the uh, uh, Korean Conference of Catholic Bishops and looking at, at how they, they have a little history section. Mm. Actually, it's quite long history section. And they tend to emphasize Catholicism, uh, its teachings on equality, challenging the social structure. Um, do you think that was an important reason, or I don't see that. I don't see that um,
1: in in the government documents. That except they they will say occasionally Catholics mix women, they, unseemly mixing of men and women in public spaces. Okay, but um, generally the the, the government didn't understand that the Catholic church teaches that all human beings are deserving of dignity. And of course the Catholic church itself in the early years, the leaders were Yangban. The leaders were the elite. They would have to become Catholic rather than they'd thought off as Confucians. Below them were often a group we call Chungin. Chungin were like right below the Yangban society basically. Uh, and they were also educated among the Chungin were interpreters of Chinese. So they were the ones who would be able to carry the letters to China and come back. Um, And so you find within the church itself, you don't find any real challenge to the social hierarchy as far as the way the church is structured. Um, And again, the government was worried that men and women might attend rituals together. uh, But that's the sole extent of government concern about a a Catholic challenge to social equality. We don't find, for example, the Catholic church at that time asking Catholics to free slaves. Korea had slaves. By in 1800, there's probably about five percent of the population were slaves. By slaves, I know Korean scholars don't like to use the term slave, but they're people who can be bought and sold, and we have yeah. needs of sale. Uh, there's only two kinds of people in the world can be bought and sold slaves and professional athletes. And <laughs> Korea didn't have any professional athletes then, so um, but the Catholic Church is not saying free the slaves. They, they would say slaves could be saved too, they could be Catholics, they could be baptized and saved, but they weren't saying free them. So... Uh, we don't see the Catholic Church really creating a challenge to the social hierarchy in practical terms. The ideology eventually, of course, would, with the teaching that all human beings are, are made in the image of God and deserve respect. But th- that wasn't the government's concern. The government's concern was their challenge to, the, to ritual uh, and their challenge after 1801 to territorial integrity. But also, uh, the, the Korean government was well aware of a Chinese problem with secret societies, which in China tended to be sort of Buddhist Taoist groups. Um, that occasionally would come together in large enough numbers to challenge the government. And when Catholics began forming these, basically, congregations, right, those are secret societies, so they had to be secret because it was illegal to be a Catholic. That also worried the government. In fact, in the government documents, you often see Catholics compared to the secret societies of China. So, uh, basically, the Catholic Church, it wasn't so much the social um, teachings of the Catholic Church, it was the whole notion that the Catholic Church didn't see the king as the ultimate authority. They saw the pope, and the pope as God's representative is the ultimate authority, and that was a challenge to the king's authority. And that's why the Catholic Church uh, was attacked so heavily, so bloodily.
0: So, um, and and just so we're, we make this clear to our audience, one thing I have to be careful because this is both we're both uh, you know we I, for our audience to make it clear, Doctor Baker was my uh, PhD advisor. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yes, <it was. laughs> this is this is an area we both um, uh, focus on. Uh, just to make things clear, um, the so the Catholic Church in Korea you know the official year of establishment is 1784 when um, uh, Peter E is is baptized. When does the first uh, Korean Catholic killed? 1791. Yeah. Right. So only it's very
1: fast. Seven years later. Yeah, um, and there were a few people killed over the course of that decade, and then and then the major persecution broke out. In 1801, after King Chengjo, the king who had kind of tolerated Catholics, um, died. King Chengjo had said, look, um, we don't need to kill them. They're they're smart people. They will eventually learn the era of their ways. All we have to do is illuminate the Confucian teachings and they'll return to the Confucian fold. But then he died at the age of 49, and and then his replacement uh, was a kid. Um, So decisions were made in that kid's name that were very anti-Catholic. That's when the big persecution began. But there were probably... Father Joe Min Mo from China had entered Korea, been smuggled into Korea um, in 1794, and the government heard he was there. And they were very concerned about that. Uh, they didn't like the idea. They didn't want Koreans going to China without their permission. They didn't want Chinese coming to Korea without them knowing about it. And they searched for him for six years, trying to find him. And actually, three of the people who helped him come to Korea were beaten to death in 1794. The government caught them. They couldn't catch Father Joe at that time, but they caught those three guys and beat them to death. Um, so, um, it was, uh, everybody knew by then that to be a Catholic was taking a big risk. That was very clear. I saw a lot of the Yangban Catholics, including the guy that I've studied so much, Chung yag left the church. I should talk about the Chung. There were three Chung brothers in the founding of the church. Chung yag is considered one of the greatest philosophers in all Korean history. His brother Chung Yak- Jun, and then Chung Yag-jong. Chung Yak jong was the last of the three to become a Catholic, and yet he's the one who stuck with it. <laughs> Both Chung Yak Yong and Chung Yak Jun uh, left the church when the whole issue of ancestor memorial service came up. Chung um, Yak Yong said later when he found out the Catholics wouldn't allow a spirit tablet, he was chilled to his very bones. But Chung Yak stayed and was martyred in 1801 and is now blessed Chung Yak beatified be out by Pope Francis.
0: Yeah, I always use the Chung brothers when I'm teaching um, Korean history at, at my university as an example of why Korean history can be complex. Cause oh, yes. <laughs> when you're first learning them, they all have these very similar
1: names. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, sometimes it's better to use their uh, either Catholic name or their, or their pen name, Dasan. chung gag is Dasan. <laughs> right.
0: yeah. um. So, I mean, you you've talked now a bit about 1791, and you use that in Chapter 4, A Decade of Hopes and Fears, as kind of your starting point, right? You start with 1791 and to and then you, you go through to 1801. Why would you call that a decade of hopes and fears? Well, I mean, the church was, still, first of all, the hopes, because they finally got a priest
1: in 1794. And actually the persecution was not widespread. And so, um, father Joe had to hide. Actually, he hid in Seoul, <laughs> he hid yeah. in the home of a high ranking Korean woman believer. Um, and uh, so the church was beginning to grow. We, there may have been by 1801 maybe ten thousand uh, believing Catholics in Korea, which is pretty amazing. We it its own illegal religion. And and now, also the king at that time, he, when he was forced to act, he would attack. He would have Catholics killed, but he tried to avoid that. So the, they knew there was it was iffy, and there were, occasionally people were caught and killed. Uh, but their hope was that they had a priest and that the government um, disdain for Catholics would would uh not lead to, uh, to uh, full scale persecution and would eventually then get the same kind of toleration that Buddhists and shamans had. I think that was their hope, but of course that 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 hope ended when uh, King Chungdo died in eighteen hundred
0: right right yeah and then the um and can you tell us a little bit then- why is it that his death is so important I mean it brings to 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 the throne this this young boy who who's Go, who has a regency, but why is that um, such a problem for the Catholics?
1: Look, um, I didn't talk about factualism in Korea, but um, only the, the Yangban are an interesting group. They're a hereditary um, group of scholars. In other words, you, to be Yangban, you have to have a uh, Yangban father and mother, but it doesn't mean they inherit government posts. They have to take a civil service exam like in China. Uh, and if you don't need, only if you do well in the civil service exam, normally will you get a government post. So these young men were competing for government posts, and of course, it helps in competition to uh, have a small group supporting you and to, against the others. And so they formed into factions. And for some reason, and I discussed the reasons a little bit in the book, most of the Catholics in this period came from a group called non-men. We can translate that as Southerners. I kind of identify with them, <laughs> <They're called> Southerners. <laughs> um, and then, uh, but the most powerful group were, were called the Nodon, which is sometimes called the Patriarchs Faction. And uh, the Patriarchs were still in control in the 1790s, but King chung had been letting nam into the government. He liked them. Also, he wanted to offset the power of the Nodon. He didn't want to have one faction monopolizing his bureaucracy. Well, when he died, the Nodon were solidly in power. Um, and they immediately went after the nam They had the, the Catholics... Catholicism provided a perfect excuse for that to go after the Catholics. I mean, they killed non-Namen Catholics as well. And they also killed commoners who were not in these factions. But um, there were political reasons. The Nodon wanted to eliminate the Namen as a political force. And Catholicism was a perfect excuse for that.
0: So, And so then that is what begins the persecution of 1801? That's
1: right. That's right. They have very soon... Um the, the young boy, he, actually a, a regency, the Queen Dowager, issues a declaration saying that the previous king had tried to awaken the, these Catholics to their evil ways and get them to return to the Christian fold. Uh, they had refused to listen. So now it was time for stronger measures. <laughs> and that basically, and also she um, intensified the government effort to find Father Joe, the, the, the Chinese priest who is still hiding in Korea. And she was, right, right. she was from a Nolan family, a patriarch family, I should point out.
0: Well, and he, I mean, Father Joe, so, and just so we're quick, so Father Joe was the Chinese priest who had come to help.
1: Right, right. Um, and I don't think he spoke much Korean. <laughs> right, right, yeah. He, but educated Koreans could write in Chinese and you could read that.
0: I uh, so we I don't know how he did confessions <laughs> with the peasants. Um, well, I thought in um, when Koreans, Korean Catholics would go to China when there was no priest in Korea, they would write their confessions, and then basically that when they were all done, they would wash off the ink. Right. I think that's the case. Yes. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so yeah, brush talk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Father Joe,
1: he would travel around the countryside. It's interesting the way he would do that. Um, back then, when 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 you were in mourning for a parent, and mourning lasted about twenty nine months. Um, you would uh, you supposed not not to interact with other people very much. So if you had to, to travel from one place to another, you'd wear a hat that covered your face, and that that told people don't talk to you, and also hide hid your facial features somewhat. So if I, when Father Joe had to leave Seoul to go into the countryside to minister to the Catholics in the countryside, he would dress like a Korean in mourning, so people wouldn't tell that he couldn't speak uh, Korean very well, <laughs> and they couldn't see that he had kind of Chinese facial features. So. Um, He was able to survive and and get around. He couldn't go out very much, but he was able to go into the countryside and and say mass and hear confessions and baptize and so on uh, for those six years before he... um, Actually, he turned himself in in 1801. When the government started killing a large number of Catholics, he thought that it was all about him, and that if he turned himself in, then the person would stop. That didn't happen. Um, He was interrogated, tortured, interrogation meant. and been beheaded, so uh, but and the persecution continued after that as well,
0: right? And he, he his death has a special impact on Alexius Huang in the Silk Letter, right? Yeah, Alexius Huang, Huang Sai Young's Christian name, Alexius. Um,
1: he was actually in the countryside uh, when Father Joe was executed, and I believe in the Silk Letter, he says that he he suddenly heard a loud, loud thunder. And like lightning in the sky, and later he found out that was the exact time that Father Joe had been beheaded. And so, um, and of course, this really bothered Huang because now there's no priest, and he needs a priest. So already he was, you know, he was in hiding, um, trying to escape, trying to keep the church alive despite the persecution. But now there's no priest, and so of course part of his letter, the silk letter, is saying, "Please send us a priest again. We need a priest soon." Um, he has some interesting ways of of uh, uh, proposing for a priest to smuggle into Korea. He said, why don't some of us Korean Catholics go to China and we'll teach some of the Chinese priests, you know, Korean, so they can uh, teach them when they're young so they can learn it uh, pretty well and then come back to Korea and people won't know they're Chinese. <laughs> okay. um, we'll teach them how to wear their hair Korean style and, and dress right, yeah. style. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, But I was really... When Father Joe left, it almost sent when Father Joe was killed it almost sent Huang into despair because the face was so so central uh, to the church.
0: Right. Well especially and for our listeners, it, it's amazing when we were translating the silk letter the, um, the, in a sense, one of the climaxes of the letter is the death that of um, Father Joe. but it's clear that when Alexius Huang wrote it, he's modeling Father Joe's death after the Passion of Christ.
1: That's true. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that is true.
0: And he, it, it's really striking how how he chooses the details to do that. So I mean, it was really well. I, my Latin's not very good, but it's what an alter Christus. Yes, and he uh, <laughs> the other Christ. Yeah, as he's being taken
1: to be executed, he asks for a little bit of alcohol, right? <laughs> not vinegar, but alcohol, right? right? Um, like Christ on the cross asked for a little bit of drink, right? Uh, yeah, you're right. There are there are some Huang is it, Huang is clearly. Um, um, trying to see, he's trying to put all the all the good Catholics basically in in the same model. We're all modeling our lives on Christ, and Father Joe was a perfect example of that. Is what he's saying, basically.
0: Right, right. So, um, I, and that's a good point. So we we had there was fears and hopes in 1791, but the the fears have won out by 1801. Oh yes, oh yes. Um, <laughs> And this leads the, you know, it's it's this death of a of um the of Father Joe that leads Alexius Huang to write this silk letter. Could you tell us a little bit about who Alexius Huang was and what the silk letter was?
1: He's a fascinating guy. He actually was very bright young young man. In fact, he came in number one on the civil service exam, the nationwide civil service exam. And we're told the king was so impressed he actually. Um, touched his hand and said, congratulations, right? Um, but soon after that, uh, he became a Catholic. And he became a, he was converted by one of the Jung's because it turns out that uh, he was, um, he was related through marriage to the Jung to the brothers. Okay, so, um, and it was the Catholic, the one who stayed Catholic, Jung Hak Jong, who converted Huang. And Huang became a Catholic after the news had come about the spirit tablet. So he knew immediately what the danger was and yet he stuck with it and he was um, very active in maintaining contact with the various dispersed Catholic communities around Korea. Um, And he he, and and Jung Yak Jong were basically, I'd say the two leaders of of the, um, um, along with a woman named Kang Won Suk who who took care of the women Catholics. Um, They were the leaders of the church during that decade of hopes and fears. And then, uh, and, but, and then Huang, um, he did escape uh, the persecution He fled Seoul. And his plan was, writing this letter was twofold. One, he wanted to record the deaths of the martyrs so that Beijing, the bishop of Beijing, and eventually the Pope in Rome, would know that there were Koreans who were dying because of their faith in God, and uh, that they were real martyrs. But then, of course, the second part of the letter was to, I mean, it's nice to have martyrs, but like to, you know, he'd like the martyrdom to stop. And so, would, uh, would the bishop in Beijing do whatever he could uh, to get uh, the persecution to stop? But most of the letter, as you know, Frank, is taken up with detailed description of of all the martyrs and how they were caught, what they did when they were being interrogated and being tortured, and uh, whether, whether or not they were faithful unto death. That's very important for him. Um, he does point out some who. Uh, apostatized. Um, uh, uh, and he points out some he's not sure. He says because he wasn't in jail with them, so he doesn't know if they abandoned the faith at the last minute. So he's, he's trying to be very accurate historically. These people are martyrs. These, no, they left the church under. The, he said they were being tortured and they couldn't stand it anymore. Um, he, he says some interesting things about Chung Yag-yong Again, he says that he claims he's not a Catholic, but I know in his heart he really is. That's what he says. Uh, right. Yeah. I'm not so convinced about that because I have read enough of um, Tungon Gung's writings
0: later. Uh, no, I, I think I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so and, and as you had mentioned, too, most of this, of course, is him talking about his friends and relatives and other Catholics who have been who have been killed. But then, as you mentioned earlier, he talks about here's some plans that you could use, one of which is to get an armada to threaten the church or threaten the the Korean government into allowing a priest to come. That's right. That's right. That was the last plan.
1: Another plan which probably upset the Korean government just as much was, why don't you tell the Manchu rulers of China? That an absorbed Korea,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so with all that being said, how if you you have a whole chapter on nationalism and the evaluations of Huang Seung in his Silk Letter? Yes. So, how have nationalists viewed Huang? Uh, it's very interesting. I say in the
1: in the book how um, I, I tried to go visit what I was told was the birthplace of Huang, and it turns out it is a home owned by a member of the Huang clan, uh, and the Catholic Church had put a marker on the road saying this is Hwang Sae-young's birthplace and um, the family had taken it down. <laughs> it wouldn't be associated with man. they considered a traitor because they were not Catholic. Because here you have a man 1801 asking for foreign intervention in Korea's internal affairs to stop the persecution of Catholics. To those who are not Catholic, that seems like he's a traitor. But to those who are Catholic, they say, those who want to defend Hwang, say no, he was he can be compared to the human rights activists of the 1970s and 80s in South Korea fighting for democracy. He was a fighter for religious freedom. And it's true in the letter, Hong actually says that the king's not the problem. It's the officials around the king. What we have to do is get rid of those bad officials and the king himself will benefit. So he's not trying to overthrow the monarchy. He's trying to overthrow the officials around the king. Um, but neither side talks about that, actually, that... The non-Catholic historians tend to say that here's a man who tried to sell out his country to foreign interests, and the Catholics say, no, he was fighting for religious freedom. What I try to argue in the book is that they're both being anachronistic. Okay? First of all, there was no nationalism in Korea then. Um, nationalism is a modern phenomenon. in Korea in the end of the 19th century. Um, There was loyalty to the monarch, and Huang definitely has that. He says in his letter, you know, we have to help the monarch become stronger, be free of these evil officials. Um, The the debate really was between whether Korea should be under ultimate authority of China or under ultimate authority of Rome. (laughs) They both agree that Korea had to recognize there is a superior power on Earth. Uh, It's just which superior power that should be. So to call Huang a traitor... Before, there was a concept of nationalism is incorrect. Um, but it's also incorrect to say he was fighting for religious freedom. He didn't say anything about religious freedom for Buddhists and shamans. <laughs> he wanted freedoms for Catholics. Okay, that's what he wanted. Um, and he, didn't even, he didn't use the term religious freedom, of course. That's a modern term. And so it's a mistake to impose modern concepts on a figure who died in 1801. Instead, realized that nationalism didn't exist. Huang was trying to make Korea the kind of country that he thought would be a better country, uh, a a country that had a thriving Catholic community. So he wasn't anti-Korean. The government was trying killed him because they thought he was undermining one of the pillars that held up the Korean monarchy. And but neither neither one of them were were really thinking in modern terms. the, the korean the, the korean government was protecting the king they weren't protecting a uh, abstract korean nation so they weren't fighting for nationalism either so it's a mistake to to discuss hwang sa young hwang in terms of modern concepts of nationalism or religious freedom but neither one which were applicable to that period of time in korean history
0: so so with that being said if he doesn't fall neatly into this nationalist or anti-nationalist view why is his work important to us today well, first of all, a we don't often
1: get a first-person account of a persecution from the standpoint of the persecuted. <laughs> Most of the records we have for, for Korean history are government documents. And so and he gives us a lot of information about life in Korea at that time and what it was like to be a member of a persecuted group. Um, that's fascinating. But uh, it also, I think… Uh, we also have, of course, in, in the book, Anjung uh, Bok's dialogue telling us how Korean Confucians thought about morality, the ground, the ultimate foundation for morality. It's quite clear, it's quite different from what we see in Christianity. But I think Huang, we do see Korea beginning to change a little bit, uh, and we see that with Huang. Um, I don't want to call him a modern thinker, but um, there are elements of modernity um, in that he's willing to switch away, first of all, from looking at China as the ultimate arbitrator of Korean affairs. Um, but also, the Catholic Church, and we see this clearly in Han's writings, introduced components that have influenced religion in Korea, not just Christianity, but religion in general. I argue they introduced for the first time an addition of one God. Um, I know many Koreans claim that Koreans used to believe in a one God a long time ago. They called it Hanunem or Hanunem, but my research has shown that that concept was really promoted by a Canadian Protestant missionary named James Gale. And so Catholics introduced the notion of one God. Now we see that now, not only in Christianity in Korea, we see more and more Buddhists emphasizing um, uh, the actual historic Buddha. Uh, We see some new religions that worship one God. It's become seen by Koreans as kind of a mark of a more sophisticated religion if it's not polytheistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the very notion of a religious congregation before Catholic Church arrived in Korea uh, the only people who really uh, wore a religious label would be Buddhist monks and shamans and Confucian scholars people who went to a Buddhist temple wouldn't call themselves Buddhist um, people who went to a shaman wouldn't call themselves shamanists Um In fact, also, there was no exclusive orientation. You could go to a Buddhist temple and a shaman ritual and a Confucian rite in the same day and have no contradiction. Catholicism introduced the notion of religious identity for lay people. And that's that's a notion that's very strong in Korea today. About half the South Korean population wear a religious label today. And so those are modern elements that we definitely see in Huang's letter, that he believes in one God and that he believes that the Catholic community, he's not a priest, he's a lay person, but he's a Catholic. Um, and he will die for that. So uh, that kind of um, belief in one supreme god and that belief that a, a lay person can have a, a religious commitment to a specific religious community strong enough, they're willing to give their life for that. That is a concept we see in modern Korea and didn't see until the Catholics arrived in Korea. So that We can see the beginnings of some elements of modern Korea in Hwang sa young's writings.
0: So Excellent. And, and I mean, um, and of course, uh, this is a very important text. I'm glad that, you know, we, the, the translation's been um, published, but there, you also included An Chung Bok's work, which we discussed earlier. Could you tell us why is it important to also include his work? Why is it important? Well, I find if I only talk about the persecution, my Canadian students will say, oh, the,
1: the Confucians were just, even if it's not Christians, oh, the Confucians were just um, a narrow-minded, uh, they were just trying to protect their power. And I want them to understand that Confucianism was actually a very strong moral philosophy. And even though we may consider the persecution of Catholics to be immoral, their motives were based on their moral principles. So I want my students, and I want people to read this book, to understand that Anjan Mok understood Catholicism as much as he could in that time. Um, but he viewed it through the lens of his Confucian categories. So it um, he had certain moral principles, and Catholicism offended against those moral principles. Catholicism denied them that the primary moral obligation of a human being was to their fellow human beings. And I want students to understand that that, that Confucians were not just narrow-minded. Uh, that Confucianism uh, was as sophisticated in its moral philosophy as Christianity is. It just had different basic premises. And I, I want them to understand that because I, I find so many of my students just think Confucianism is nothing but a bunch of uh, ritual rules that are based on, on um, people in power trying to control society. That's how they think of it. And I want them to see that much more than that. Anjan Mok was not a government official. He was a private Confucian scholar who sincerely believed in the teachings of Confucianism and was concerned when his son-in-law became a Catholic – he thought that is threatening the moral foundations of his society. And that bothered him a lot. I want students to understand that.
0: Right. And one other thing, I think it's, it's maybe also for our, for a couple of questions to kind of um, end our interview with a lot of times uh, people work in only one language, Right. right. <laughs> but if, of course for Koreanists, we don't have that luxury. We have to work in Korean and usually classical Chinese and maybe some Japanese. Too.
1: Right. That's right.
0: So, um so i wonder if you could tell us a little bit what was it like translating these two uh works well as you remember it's it's not easy (laughs) because chinese is very concise
1: um and so you can um and traditional texts don't have punctuation fortunately we were able to work from a modern edition of the text that had punctuation which helps Um, but uh, one of the problems with translating a chinese text is that one term can have a multiple of meanings because the Chinese has been a written language for over 2,500 years, and the Chinese never throw away an old meaning of a term. They'll just add a new meaning. So you, sometimes you don't know when you're reading the text until you put the, get the context, whether you, you're supposed to read that word with the, with the more recent meaning or a more ancient meaning. And also, um, and Huang didn't do this so much, but Anjum Bok did, uh, Confucian scholars memorized the Confucian classics. So they would just throw out a four or eight syllable phrase from a classic without telling you where it came from. But when you translate this into English, you've got to identify that stuff <laughs> for your readers. So uh, that had to look. And then you could understand the meaning of that four or eight uh, syllable phrase. You hadn't got to know the context. And so classical Chinese is very contextual. And uh, doesn't have the kind of grammatical clues that you have in modern English. Doesn't have the precision in the language you have in English. So you had to translate from a contextual language to a language that's much more precise, and and to try to to maintain the richness of the of the contextual breadth and depth of Chinese into English was not easy. Uh, Any time you translate, you 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 change the meaning. You detract a little. You can't do the. You can't translate hundred percent of what the original source says we tried to do as much as we could to stick as close to it as we could but it's it, it's always a uh, it's a hopeless task you can't do it and it's frustrating I think we've done the best that we could possibly do uh, with this text putting it into English so that our readers could get inside the head of both Anjung Bok and then later of Hong say young that, that was our goal to help readers get inside their head I hope we've done that
0: well, what's the again for our, our listeners and readers, I mean, one page of classical Chinese is equal to about, what, four pages of English? (laughs) That's about right.
1: That's right, yes.
0: It's just astounding. And and I remember we really struggled because they don't have plural markers necessarily. That's right. So I remember we we went back and forth where uh, Huang Soeyang talked about a a guy to prove he really wasn't a Catholic, took a concubine. And it wasn't clear if we should say concubine or concubine.
1: Exactly. They don't don't really Mm -hmm. need the plural. Yes, (laughs) classical Chinese. (laughs) So it was... Mm -hmm yeah
0: i can't remember how we dealt with that but but also and of course this is a, a again a, a team effort so not only did we work on this in a sense i remember when i was in korea and was was working a bit on this uh professor joe guang who you had introduced me to and, and served as my advisor while i was in korea he introduced me to father yo chin chun mm-hmm. who was in charge of the holy site um where hwang Se young actually hid Beiron. yes and he it was he was the one right that actually went through and punctuated it
1: right right he was Yes. Yeah. We relied on his edition. It's the most careful edition of the, of the silk letter available. He, he's really a good scholar.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, I wanted to give those two credit cause they, they really helped us a lot and they get credit in the book, but I wanted to get them in the interview. Well, they did help
1: us a lot. We couldn't have done it without them. Basically. Yes.
0: Yeah. Right, no, they were, they were great. Um, well, we've taken a lot about of your time. I wonder, though, first of all, do you have any anything else you'd add about the translation or the the earlier work that you've done, or how this fits in? I mean, this is not your first book. How this fits into your career o- uh, overall? Well, I hope this book is read by more than just Catholics.
1: <laughs> uh, um, the, the title, Catholics and Catholicism in Joseon Korea, may may um, people may look at that and say, "Well, I'm not I'm not a Catholic, so I don't need to read this," because it's really about Joseon Korea. You know, in in, in, in um, late 18th, early 19th century, um, and I hope people will see it as such. It gives us again this rare glimpse of, um, of what it was like to be a subject of government persecution, from the standpoint of the persecuted, um, and, and also we get a rare glimpse at why a, of a Confucian scholar like An would actually uh, be so um, condemning of this. Um, uh, uh, I don't, he wouldn't call it a religion; they didn't use that term then. This new uh, Way of thinking that had entered, entered his country and, in his words, infected his family, his son in law. Uh, and I, I think by reading this book, people will understand not only the history of the Catholic Church in Korea, the early years of it, but also come to a better understanding of Korean Confucianism and of the basic um, cultural history of Chosun Dynasty Korea. So I wanted to be read by people to understand Chosun Dynasty in general, not just the history of the Catholic Church.
0: Well, excellent. When I, and I think you did that very well. And I was glad I could contribute some small part. I always <laughs> appreciate you giving me that that opportunity. Um, well, we've taken a lot of your time, but I'd like to, to take just a little bit more to ask you our traditional question on the New Books Network. What are you working on now? I'm trying to finish a translation of a book by this guy, Chung Yang yong Da-san. Um,
1: and what I chose to translate is a commentary on the Confucian classic that's usually translated as Doctrine of the Mean. But I chose his commentary that he wrote in, guess what, 1784. Oh, <laughs> uh, important year. Yeah, He wrote it a few months after he first encountered Catholic writings. Uh, and he also, in this text, he in this particular commentary, he has several references to Ibiuk, who was one of the first Catholics. And so even though this is a Confucian text, and Tassan revived it two more times, the last revision was 1814, you still see influence of Catholic writings in this Confucian commentary on a Confucian classic, and I, I find it fascinating. You mentioned earlier that a few pages of classical Chinese can be a lot of pages um, in in English. The original text in Chinese is about sixty pages. The book is going to be with commentary and my annotations about 600. <laughs> so, uh, that sounds about right. Yeah. But, uh, again, I chose it because again, Tassan, he talks about a God. Um, he, even after he left the church, Tassan clearly believed in a Supreme being. He wouldn't call you would his term being that's, that's a Western term, but, uh, a, a deity, uh, an actual, a supernatural personality. um, and that's clearly Catholic influence. And you see that when, when he's um, doing this Confucian commentary on this Confucian classic. He's putting God into Confucianism. And the only way to understand his commentary is to look at the Catholic influence on his thinking. He's still a young man at this point in his 20s. And so I, I hope when that book comes out, people will read the two books together and and see how the introduction of Catholicism into Korea First of all, the reaction to it gives us some insight into Korean thinking at that time, but also kind of begin nudging Korea in a new direction that that eventually um, blossomed into what
0: we see in modern Korea today. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for the time, and I'm I'm looking forward to, to having a look at your newest translation when it comes out. Well, th- good talking with you, Frank. <laughs> okay. Good deal. Well, have a good day. You too. Thank you for listening to this interview. This has been the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Franklin Roush, one of the hosts of this channel, and I want to thank you for listening to this interview, and I hope you'll come back and listen to another one soon.